Welcome to Consumed, the podcast that features casual conversations with the people behind what we eat and drink. I'm Jamie Lewis, and I just discovered that Consumed hit the top 40 of food and wine podcasts in the U.S. this past year. Top 40. Mind blown. I think you're going to like this ninth season of the Consumed podcast. I interviewed a couple chefs, a brewer, knife designers, a cheese purveyor, produce manager, fitness instructor, farmer advocate, religion professor, singer-songwriter, wine historian, and a pizza don. From Paso Robles to Ventura, they told me the story behind the story of what they do and why. Before we get into it, let me give a quick shout out to a couple of key sponsors who make this podcast tick. One is Santa Maria wine grower James Onaveros with Ranchos de Onaveros Wines. In April, James's label, Native Nine, was named among Wine and Spirits magazine's best Pinot Noir of the year in the country. I mean, I'm not surprised, but still, that's a really big deal. To taste those Pinots, head to the station in Los Alamos, where you'll find the most recent wines from Rancho de Anaveros, as well as tasty grub from Cisco Kid Catering, like classic Santa Maria-style tri-tip, barbecue plates, burgers, pork belly tacos, plus beer, kombucha, even avocado toast. Hang out in Los Alamos, enjoy James's wines, and soak up the best of a Central Coast summer. Many thanks to Rancho de Anaveros and James for his support of this podcast and his commitment to the growth of the local wine industry. For more information about Rancho de Anaveros wines, visit ranchostayanaveros.com. I'm also grateful for support from Slow Life Magazine, which focuses exclusively on the perks of living in San Luis Obispo, California. Keep an eye out for my next food column in the magazine. I did something a little different this time, and I asked a few kids about their favorite dishes and restaurants in town. I was rather shocked by their answers, and I can't wait for you to read all about it. Look for the June issue on newsstands at Boo Boo Records and Barnes and Noble, or subscribe at slowlifemagazine.com. It's tough to pace a conversation with Dr. Stephen Lloyd Moffat, professor of religious studies at Cal Poly State University in San Luis Obispo, California. It gets metaphysical pretty quickly, especially when he starts talking about wine, wine zealots, and the religiosity of the vine. As an amateur winemaker and wine aficionado, he saw similarities in the way people devote themselves to wine and the way people devote themselves to their faith. The idea spurned a class at Cal Poly called Religion and Wine, and research for the subject took Stephen all over the world. The result is a set of two books— one entitled The Spirit of Wine, Finding Religion in the Fruit of the Vine, and The Spirit of Winemakers, Finding Religion from the Vineyard to the Bottle. We chatted about humanity's search for meaning, the sometimes madness of the mystics, and how at the end of every wine lover's rainbow is a bottle of German Riesling, although in Stephen's case, it's still burgundy. Here's my chat with Stephen Lloyd Moffat. Hey, Stephen Lloyd Moffat, thank you for coming to my backyard and talking to me. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. Of course. <laughs> so somebody who doesn't know you may f- look at your title and say, why is she asking him to come on um, to talk about, you know, the things that we eat and drink? But you've written a couple of books that are about um, religion and wine, one being called The Spirit of Wine, Finding Religion in the Fruit of the Vine. Yeah. So how did that come about? 
Well, it, I mean, as with most uh, great things in life, it was uh, pretty acci accidental. I, uh, you know, I've spent most of my career looking at religious people. Mm -hmm. and trying to understand what motivates them. And for most of that time, it's been people that are traditionally religious. So I studied early Christianity and early Hinduism, and, and even in uh, contemporary religion, religions, these are people who belong to churches and mosques and synagogues. Uh, and then, uh, boy, about 2010, I, I began to, to say, well, maybe we need to expand our understanding of religion and look outside the box. And, and what I realized is that um, some of my best examples of people who had a deeply spiritual relationship to something were my friends in the wine industry mm -hmm. and my friends who are passionate about wine. Mm -hmm. And so I said, if you, if you set aside what we traditionally think uh, constitutes religion mm -hmm. and just say, where do people find meaning in their life? Where do people allow mystery into their life? Where do people have transcendent experiences? Where do you find community? Where do you, how do you arrange your schedule and, and find the groups that are important, uh, important to, to you? Uh, so many of them were, were in wine. Mm -hmm. And I realized that maybe there is this whole world out there of people uh, for whom traditional religion uh, it doesn't play the same roles as maybe it did to our ancestors, mm -hmm. but yet find many of the same goals and end game that traditional religions have. Mm -hmm. and, so, um, and so I began to just explore this notion uh, that, you know, maybe wine acts as a sort of religion for people. Mm -hmm. and, I, um, and, it, and it ended up just going in this direction of finding all these similarities and then being able to use the tools that I developed in studying religious people to study people uh, for whom wine is not just a passing interest or something to enjoy on the occasion, but really becomes central to their life. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, as that project evolved and I went around the world interviewing winemakers, I, it, just sort of, uh, it just sort of blossomed into now two books, mm -hmm. uh, one on the spirituality of wine itself for those who want to make uh, wine uh, part of their spiritual lives, and then the spirituality of winemakers um, and sort of uh, understanding what drives uh, people within the industry. That is so fantastic. Did you set out on that project knowing it would be a book, or was it more of just like a research sort of project? Well, there's a longer story and a shorter story here. Give me the longer one. Okay. The, uh, the interesting thing is, and this will take a bit, but I teach a class called The Religion and Politics of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. What? Okay. And a particular uh, note this week. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and I team teach it with a political scientist. And not to get into the backstory of, you know, how, uh, uh, how Cal Poly works, but when you team teach, you only get half credit for teaching, even though it's about twice as much work. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, because this this class was so important to our community, uh, for years the dean kind of said, "Hey, I'll just uh, give you a full class." But after four or five years of teaching it, uh, she said, "Look, I need you to come up with a two-unit class." And at the time, I, I, my background is, is studying monks in the uh, Hindu tradition and the Christian tradition. I, I do a lot on asceticism, which is like controlling the body. And so I, I proposed a two-unit class called the Sex Lives of Saints. 
And it's I'm based, sold. It's, yeah, it's based on a great book. It's actually a serious topic. But I went to her and I said, hey, here's the class I'd like to teach. And she says, Steve, I think it sounds so interesting, but I think it will distract people from graduation. So I'm going to give you two units not to teach that class because it will be too popular with students. Yeah. And so I said, you're going to pay me not to teach because it's going to be too popular? And she said, yeah. And so I was like, okay, fine. And then next year, same thing comes up. So I'm thinking, what class can I come up with that she would say the same thing? Mm -hmm. This class is going to be too popular. So I had, uh, had made wine for a number of years at that point. We had a very close wine tasting group. Uh, mm -hmm. Wine was very important to my life. So I said, okay, I'm going to propose um, spirituality and wine. And Cal Poly is learned by doing. And so uh, we're going to taste wine every Friday as a class and talk to winemakers. Clearly, she's going to say that class is going to be too popular. And she calls me in and she said, Steve, what are you doing? You always are doing this. And, and she said, look, I don't think you'll get 25 students to take this class because young people aren't into wine. Mm. And I, I tell her, I am literally proposing drinking for credit. <laughs> and you don't think Cal Poly students will sign up for it? And she says, okay, uh, try it. So we put it out there. And the first day it filled up and of then course. there were 60 people on the wait list. So then I thought, oh gosh, I've got to teach this course all of a sudden. <laughs> and I, you know, there's a sort of subgenre of philosophy in wine. There's three or four books on it mm -hmm. where some serious philosophers have kind of taken philosophy and applied it to wine. Uh, I figured there was the same in religion. I just hadn't really looked at it, but there really wasn't there. Mm. You know, there's some historical studies of wine in the Bible or wine among monks, but there was really nothing on sort of the, the spirituality of wine itself. And so I really had no idea where to start. And so I decided just to use this as an excuse to get to know some of the great winemakers of our region. Yeah. And so the first one was a wine I always wanted to taste, which was John Albin's wine. Yes, I was going to say, right and, off the bat. And so I, I write to, to, to John and I say, I say, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm teaching this class and I'd, I'd love for you to be the first person I interview uh, and have class out there. So he, he very kindly said yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, we went out there and I, but he was, it was interesting because he was very reticent. He said, look, I am not religious. Mm -hmm. I grew up Jewish, but I'm not religious. It doesn't inform my wine. I go, yes, but people have this passion about your wine. And yes. inside I was just going, I just love to taste it. I've never <laughs> had a chance to. So we sit down with him the very first day and I have no idea what to ask him, but I'm in front of the class and I just say, so John, how do you decide when to pick? Mm -hmm. You know, cause having a little backyard vineyard in, in our thing, we, you know, it's an important question. And, uh, and he said, the vines tell me. And I was okay. like, what, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. The vines tell you. He goes, you know, it's something that when you spend so much time with them, there's a sort of communication that happens. And I said, you know, John, that sounds really religious. And he goes, no, it's, I mean, well, it's not traditionally religious. And I was like, huh, there's mm -hmm. something there. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I admit that when everybody's gone from the winery, I often put monastic chant on. Oh, listen And I'm to not that. even, you know, I'm not Christian. Yeah. I'm, I, but it just seems to fit. Mm. And then... As we talked on, he gave other examples because I, I was asking him about Riva and some of these very famous vineyards. And he goes, you know, it's interesting that he gets, he said, you know, every few months, somebody will write him and say, 
I just want to go see where that wine came from because it's the wine I got engaged to. Or it's mm-hmm. the wine we broke out at my parents' funeral or something. Mm-hmm. And they come and he says, sometimes they cry and they take stones away. Mm-hmm. And I go, John, that's just a pilgrimage. Yeah. And people have been doing that forever. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was funny because that night we had a departmental wine tasting, which, which we, we used to do about every month. Mm-hmm. And, and I was just going, wow, what just happened? Like, I, you know, I kind of discovered religion in this person yeah. and in this industry. And, and as I walked in, you know, we were at this house where there was a big uh, table in the middle. And there was bread and cheese <laughs> and wine and a whole bunch of, 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 of crystal glasses. And I was like, gosh, that suddenly starts looking like an altar. Yeah. And, and a Eucharist. And, and yeah. All, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, we toasted to Dionysius, which we'd kind of always done as a joke. And mm-hmm. I'm like, how much of a joke is this? Like, what, what are we doing? And then the whole night suddenly changed or registered to me because I was like, this is kind of like a Bible study. Mm-hmm. We are respectful towards it. We're both kind of all trying to express what's important to us about it mm-hmm. um, and sharing and to be fair, the people around this table are probably my closest cohort. Mm-hmm. And wine was what brought us together. And so that was really the fermentation of this whole topic. And, uh, and then it's just kind of been on a ride. And I ended up making uh, wine. I, I was a sabbatical in McLaren Vale mm. and oh, fell cool. into just a, a great winemaking experience yeah. uh, with an amazing family. Is that a lot of Pinot? I'm trying to remember. No, Syrah. It's all Shiraz. Yeah, mostly okay. Shiraz, uh, Grenache. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's some other stuff there. But mm. um, but it was just, uh, you know, just fell into this this amazing family who I talk about a lot in the book. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as I made wine with them... I, I spent so much time trying to understand what drove them yeah. uh, because they sort of had the humility of, of many of the monks that I've met, you know, because I spent most of my career studying monks. Mm. Uh, and they had this sort of respect and humility towards it. And, um, and that's kind of where a lot of the chapters were written, yeah. uh, trying to understand that. And then eventually uh, spent, uh, spent a fall uh, in France mm. uh, interviewing, especially Burgundian winemakers, uh, and then uh, Oregon and Washington, California, kind of went around. So cool. Yeah. So fun. I mean, to look at it from that angle. I'm wondering if, if we're talking about Let's just keep it really, really simplistic. If we're talking about wine as a religion, mm-hmm. um, first of all, I'd want to get the definition of religion versus <laughs> a cult. I would want to know. Um, but e- either way, then what is God in that? What is yeah. the higher power? Well, I, I think in this case, um, we have to sort of rearrange our thoughts on religion. Is A lot of people think that they go to church or synagogue because God drew them there. Mm-hmm. And without you know, uh, commenting whether there is a God or not a God. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly that plays a role, but religion plays a lot of other roles in people's lives. It is how you organize your life, where mm-hmm. you find community, where you find mystery, uh, where you find transcendence. And I, and I think, you know, God becomes a symbol for an experience you have with something that is often very hard to articulate. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it is very nice to say, 
hey, at church, I felt God's presence. Mm -hmm. But, um, and that's a, and that's a cohesive way of presenting it that other people understand. Um, but, uh, but in the end, most religious traditions will say whatever that thing is behind that feeling, Mm -hmm. it goes beyond language. It goes Mm -hmm. beyond human comprehension. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, then that thing, that source can manifest itself to, in different ways to different people, mm-hmm. through different avenues. And so, you know, having spent most of my life studying traditionally religious people, I can say that the way that, you know, a very traditional Orthodox Jew and the way a, a, a Muslim and a, and, a, and a Hare Krishna follower speak about it have, have significant parallels to one another. Mm-hmm. They define God differently. They use different routes to it. Uh, to appreciate, uh, you know, the divine source uh, or however you want to say it. Mm -hmm. But they they have that sort of common uh, experiences. uh, And you see that in wine, too. Mm -hmm. You know, you have those moments where somebody is caught in the midst of a glass and just stops and can't speak. Mm -hmm. And, And they wonder, like, how is it that this fermented grape juice can somehow touch me? in ways that I had never expected. Mm -hmm. And that's the same experiences that people have had in religion. So without saying, okay, Dionysius is behind it all. that's the one. Mm -hmm. That's the one. Or, you know, Bacchus is behind it all. I can say that when I look at traditional religious people and I look at a certain sub-segment of wine, uh, there are people, uh, they look quite similar. Mm. And and so... um, you know, I, I, I often tell groups that, you know, if, if traditional religion is working for you, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I love, you know, I'm so involved in different uh, churches and synagogues and mosques mm-hmm. and faith communities, and, and they are so enriching for people. Yeah. But if you just look at polls uh, and, and opinion surveys, uh, traditional religion hasn't worked for a lot of people for a long time. Mm-hmm. And yet that, that urge for something deeper, for mystery and transcendence and community is still there. And so um, people are searching for something else. Mm-hmm. And if you're one of those people, maybe you don't have to make up a whole religion. Maybe you can just take the things in your life that already provide those things to you and just be conscious of it. Mm-hmm. So make your wine tasting group your church. Yeah. Make, make your experience with wine. Just stop and say, okay, what's happening here and allow it to fulfill some of those needs Mm -hmm. and be okay with the fact that it doesn't fit any box that has been there before. Um, And so, so much of like the spirit of wine is about is, is thinking through how to do that in a conscientious way. Like how how to, if you're one of those who are looking for some spiritual depth, some community, some uh, something and are not finding it elsewhere. um, How can wine play that role? Mm Mm-hmm. Gosh, I have so many questions, and I'm trying really hard not to treat you like the guru on the mountaintop. <laughs> I want you to answer all of my questions. Um, I, I Okay, so a few things that are coming to mind. First of all, if we're seeing a spirit of wine, something that's special to wine, mm-hmm. do we also see the spirit of spirits? Do we also see the spirit in beer? Do we see the spirit in kombucha? Yeah. I mean, a, and furthermore, what about water? I mean, that's such a... <laughs> That's such a heavy, I mean, you think about living water. Yeah. Um, so I'm asking you a lot there, but 
is wine. Is there just something one? unique of it? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I think I think in in general, people can find a lot of of the elements of religion in other substances. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not discounting that, but I do think there's something unique about wine, um, in the sense of a, a few elements. First, wine is alive, like you know. You know, I, I was interviewing uh, Becky Wasserman, who's kind of mm-hmm. the grand dame of Burgundy. And one of the things she said straight off, she goes, Steve, you have to know, every bottle of wine wants to be vinegar. Mm-hmm. And we are just stopping that process and hoping to get it at, it's, uh, at a spot in its journey towards vinegar uh, that is most transcendent. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that happens, we don't know. But for us to have a meaningful relationship with anything, it has to be dynamic. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, art can move us, and people get, get moved by it. But usually the art doesn't change. You change, because we're always changing, but the art doesn't change. One of the great things about wine is it's constantly evolving. You know, it has a lifespan. And, and so the wine that we taste today, even we open that bottle tomorrow won't taste the same, not just because the wine has changed, but, but we have changed in, in our relationship to it. So to have meaningful relationships, uh, you have to have two dynamic entities. And that doesn't happen as much with other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, yes, we can talk about, you know, a three-month-old beer, but it's hardly ever, you know, we're now like... watch yourself Yeah, now. you know, that, that we're like, <laughs> ugh. I mean, it can be, you know, barrel-aged no, barrel age beer is yes, a thing. Yes, of course. So there, are, so there are things. But but there are very few things that we have this dynamic relationship. So if you buy a case of wine, mm-hmm. um, you get to have that relationship over years yeah. and see it evolve. Or if you're a member of, of, of a great winery, especially a winery that has a certain, you know, vintage, you know, take Bassey Ranch with Signer or something mm-hmm. like that. You get to see this place of the earth evolve. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, so I think the, the uh, dynam- dynamism of, of wine allows you to do that. Uh, the second thing I would say is that very few things that we consume um, bear the imprint of its place and its birth to such a degree. Mm-hmm. In other words, we don't, usually get a beer and say, oh, this is hops from this slope in Washington, right? right? right, But every single bottle of wine has to tell the story of its birth. That is, as specific as it can, where it came from. So a vineyard designate, if possible, if less, you know, an AVA, even less, you know, state, but Mm -hmm. it tells where and when, the yes, year, which is not, uh, which yeah. is just not the case. I mean, we never sit there and say, "Oh, this is a 2018 Coke from the Albuquerque plant." I mean, we don't <laughs> do that, right? I think we should try. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, I mean, but that's absolutely right. And and so, wine has the potential to transport us mm-hmm. to a place and to a time in a way that other substances don't. So I have never been to France in 1957, mm-hmm. but if someone gives me a Bordeaux from 1957. And I am mindful by drinking it. I am taken to a place and a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to the extent that wine can, uh, can reveal 
uh, and allow or reveal a place, a time, and allow us to travel to those. I think it's unique in that sense. Yeah. I mean, th- there are other things that can do it. Uh, um, you know, tea to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Those who are very into tea will talk about, uh, you know, have tea cellars and have yeah. like, um, you know, it's this mountainside of of China. But year it's not alive. Very few people like that. I I interviewed. Um, uh, Philip White, who is a, has a big uh, wine blog drinkster, mm-hmm. and he argued that marijuana reveals that thing, mm-hmm. which I, I don't know, but maybe it can. But we just have so few substances that are part of our life that both have the dynamism and the ability to take us places yeah. uh, that um, do it. And then the third thing I would say is so much of wine is wrapped up into a culture. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's a famous French writer who said, if you take wine away from France, you no longer have France. Yeah. Like to understand France, the Hungarian national anthem has wine in it, you know, the Hungarian wine. To understand Greece, you have to understand Ritzina. And so, and so, you know, one of the things wine can do is it's so wrapped up in culture that it not just takes us to a place at a time, but it, but it allows us an entree into a people and a place and a history. Yeah. And, and so that dynamism, the, the way that it reveals place and time and the way that it allows us into a culture, I think is so unique mm-hmm. uh, with wine. Do you, what do you think about, uh, let's just call it bad wine? What mm-hmm. does bad wine do for, uh, uh, you know, something that is uh, made from bloated grapes yeah. that are mistreated, maltreated, um, you know, with all kinds of tricks that get it to taste a certain way? Um, how does that relate? Yeah, well, so it's interesting. Uh, when I was making wine in McLaren Vale, when we had a slow day. I'd kind of go and, and make wine with other winemakers to, to interview and help out. And, and um, I... I, I Prior to, to taking the sabbatical there, I taught at the University of South Australia, University of Adelaide, uh, and, um, and we had with Cal Poly students, and we had visited Opolo, which is the maker of Jacob's Creek. Uh, and Jacob's Creek Cab Shiraz is the best-selling wine in the world. They sell about 11 million bottles of that one wine a year South in the Australia, world. South Australia, yeah. And they're, they're, uh, um, their holding tanks are eight stories high, you know, 200 feet wide, mm-hmm. and they've got a dozen of them. And to make that blend, they use turbines. And it is an incredible feat of science yeah. to make 11 million bottles taste the same. And not just in one year, but year after year, it tastes yeah. the same. So I'm not trying to discount it. Mm-hmm. But I was at this small winemaker, and I said, I was talking about that. He goes, that's not wine. That's a beverage. And I was like, uh, I go, I'm like, what's the difference? And he, and he said, look, a beverage tries to be the same. Year after year, you don't want your Coke from 2012 being different from 2013. No. Coke is supposed to be Coke. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the mass-produced wines, they're creating a beverage. And interestingly, Opolo, the maker of Jacob's Creek, actually says, Opolo, a beverage company, not a wine company. <laughs> Good for them. And, and I noticed that afterwards, because, but, but it, it's interesting. So not all wines have the capability to transmit mm-hmm. these things. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, no, you there's know. There's a place for everything. There's a place for that. A porch pounder on a, yeah. on a Sunday afternoon, you know, go for it. it yeah. It's great. Um, but, you know, you have to have, for wine to have a spiritual experience upon you, you have to be, uh, you have 
both have a wine capable of transmitting something and be in a mindset to allow you to have that. Yeah. I mean, you can put, you know, uh, an epic wine in front of somebody, but if you're on the interstate and you're, you know, you're sitting down at a fast food joint and you're drinking it out of a styrofoam cup, you're not going to have a spiritual experience yeah. with it. So it's that meeting. But I mean, that's the reality of religion generally. I mean, you know, uh, you've got to have something there, but you've got to be prepared too. Yes, yeah. And you know, the reality of most people who go to churches or synagogues or mosques or temples on a regular basis is most, most visits are, eh, they're fine. You know, <laughs> okay. You saw some friends, you did, but you don't have they transformative experience yet. Yeah. yeah right. But you know, what brings you back is every once in a while yeah. you get that experience and, and the same with wine, mm-hmm. you know, you have a lot of wines like, that's great. Yeah. That, that, that tastes good. Mm-hmm. I, I'm appreciative of that. And then um, every once in a while, you have that experience that just makes you go, stop. Yeah. And say, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I find, and, and I, I notice this in, in other areas of life too, it's usually unexpected moments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people in the wine industry or critics in particular uh, talk up these epic wine tastings, 100 years of DRC or something mm-hmm. like that, or a ladder of Screaming Eagle. And, and I, I was talking to, um, to one in Burgundy, and he was like, to be honest, and, he, and this guy had been a part of every epic wine tasting. And um, he said, to be honest, the best wine experiences have been on a rainy Thursday afternoon at a, after a pretty crappy day. Mm-hmm. And I looked at my wife and said, let's open. Let's open it. And he goes, that's, that's mm-hmm. it. That's the moment. Yeah. That unexpected time. I, I, and I would say pre-pandemic, uh, my partner and I, um, w- she had given a talk and they had given her a gift certificate to uh, the restaurant in, um, at uh, the senior center in Napomo. What's it called? The, is it Willow? Oh, no, no not Willow. No, no. But this Sorry. Is, this is uh, the, the big, I uh, uh, blank on the name now. Yeah. But anyhow, you know, not, not exactly, but we were like, oh, we'll go. Yeah. And I had given a talk and someone had given me a bottle of Kukula mm-hmm. as a thanks. Mm-hmm. And we went there and it was like a Wednesday night and we got this kind of senior center and we opened <laughs> this wine and yeah, we were just talking the day we had one sip and both of us just stopped and we're like, this is an amazing wine. Yeah. This... And, and, you know, a Wednesday night at a just senior center. Just not where you were thinking yeah. it was going to go. And when wine does that, it reminds us that there's, you know, something bigger. Yeah. That, that, there's, that there is, um, there's times when the universe calls you to repay attention mm-hmm. and to stop. And, um, and, and that's those beautiful wine experiences mm-hmm. uh, that really change who you are. Let's take a quick detour here to talk about another consumed sponsor. Slow Food Co-op's mission is to empower health and well-being in the community by providing quality groceries, local produce, and exceptional customer service. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining non-GMO standards and a variety of organic selections. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop 
and visit the Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. It's what you bring as well, like you were mm-hmm. saying. It's it, just like anything in religion. It's, the, you know, going on a Sunday, Saturday, Friday, whatever, to a religious yeah. service. This week, maybe the, the Jamie Lewis that comes this week um, isn't primed for that. Yeah. And so the Jamie Lewis who comes the next week is, but also whatever I'm receiving changes in his dynamic. And, you know, mm. as you talk about dynamism, that's one of the most frustrating things, I think, about a spiritual set of beliefs is for some for you to have a relationship with something i completely agree it has to be dynamic however that is a source of massive frustration when you cannot put a target on something it's just constantly evolving and changing yeah but i think the unpredictability about it gives it meaning yes you know because of its mechanized then it 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 seems routine and 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 cheap right Mm -hmm. I think the unexpected character of it uh, gives it gives it that, and you know, it, it's a little bit like like golf. Um, that I thought it, about that. It, yes, it, you know, people who golf will tell you that you know you hit you know hundred shots in a in in a round, and you know you usually have one or two. You usually have you know mostly mm-hmm. crappy ones and one too good. But then it's that one hit mm-hmm. that keeps you coming back. I mean, you know, and you really just need one. Yeah. And, and it, it reminds you of why you're out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's what, that's with wine mm-hmm. is, is that you don't have to have a transcendent experience every moment, but when you do, you realize there's something there and it, and it, and it spurs you on in the same way religion is like that too. I mean, you know, reality is y- you need, you need those occasional reminders. Yeah. But, but on a day-to-day basis, there's kind of the ritual and routine about it uh, that fills in the gaps between those. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not to say that those, to diminish those things, because the community that you, that you have yeah. around religion, that, that's a super important part it's of life. The yeah. structure religion gives you, the ethics religion can mm-hmm. give you, the, um, the, the, uh, the way that it organizes your life is, is super important. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but but I, I still hold that it's the, the spiritual experiences, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and you know wine is interesting because virtually you know I, I did over sort of a hundred interviews with people in the wine industry, and um, every single one could tell me a story about the wine that converted them. Yep, yep. And and they're they're and it's amazing because sometimes the wine was 50 years ago yeah. and they were say it was this restaurant at this time, this vintage. Mm-hmm. And, um, in the same way, when I, when I've interviewed monks, they can always tell you the, the story that led them to become a monk, mm-hmm. you know, the moment that they realized that this is what they wanted to spend their life doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, those conversion experiences just leave an indelible mark upon us. Mm-hmm. And sort of give us a way of structuring our, or the framework through which we see the world mm-hmm. uh, that, that really sticks with us. And, and wine has had that capability to do that yeah. for people. Mine, not that you're asking, but <laughs> mine um, was a Spätlese Riesling. Um, I did not, I had no interest in German wine. None <laughs> at all. And it was so good. It was during... Uh, 
I was doing a tasting for my um, WSET, uh-huh. and uh, we were going through, I don't know, we were doing Sancerre, and we were yeah. doing um, Marlboro uh, Sauvignon Blanc, and then we got to the Spätlese, and this is like 65 win- uh, wines in <laughs> to a day. And I had been spitting dutifully, and with that spate laser, I had no control over my body, and I swallowed it, and I just could not, I couldn't believe what I was tasting. Yeah. Phenomenal. Sweet, you know, <laughs> off-dry German white wine. Who knew that yeah. that was going to be my thing? There's a there's a list that I found on the, uh, the pathway to wine transcendence, and I loved it because... Uh, stage eight was the discovery of Burgundy, which which I, I get, right? <laughs> yeah, I yeah, can yeah. tell you what that happened. Yeah. Stage nine, though, is the realization that you can't afford stage eight. Oh, shoot, yeah. And then stage 10 is the discovery of Mosul. Yeah, there, there, there we and, are. And that's Nirvana. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I would say, I have not had that experience with German oh, wines yet. Oh, you'll get there. But uh, I pray that I will, you know. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm waiting for that moment. German sure. wines yeah. are just, it's like, I felt like I was tasting lace. Like, just so intricate, fine. It yeah. was beautiful. Yeah, and you know, what's interesting as, as you talk about that is, you know, so much of, and, and this is this is a fascinating case study because WSET and all the exams are all pretty technical. Yes, you know, very. it's name this, 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 and here's here's your here's your list of words, and here's the order in which you give them. But religion's not like that, right? Religion is when you have to throw away all the structures you had before, and what do you do? You naturally become a poet. It tastes like lace, mm-hmm. which of course doesn't have a taste, but yet we know what you're talking about, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and that's what mystical experiences have always done. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, what, what, what spurs religion on is not the theologians, but the mystics. Or the theologians want to explain God. The, the mystics want to convey the experience of God. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that has been through paradox, through poetry, through eroticism, through, I mean, all these things, because language falls short. And, and, and also, I love that story for you, because it, it also shows that when almost every religious person I've talked to, I said, you know, how did you become a monk? You know, you know, when did you just change that? You know, when did you choose that? And almost to a person, they said, I never chose that. Mm. Somehow it was chosen for me. Mm-hmm. That I can remember the moment where I realized that, that this is not something I necessarily want to do, but it just came upon me. Mm-hmm. In the same way where you were like, I didn't, you know, I'd been spitting, but, yeah. uh, but I couldn't. And that's it's the not thing like I is, prepared myself. Oh, we're going to taste the spate lays? And yeah. no, it happened. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and that's the thing is, is I think the experience is... Um, and especially if you're one who loves control mm. and loves organization. Not at well, all. Uh, <laughs> you know, if, if, if someone's like that and then they confront a wine where they realize that the universe has conspired to blow that up in their head mm. and they, they, they have to give up, that's, that, that's the experience that countless mystics over the years have mm-hmm. talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the engine of religion. And that's the engine of the spirituality of wine. Those mm-hmm. moments where the overwhelming presence of something bigger and greater comes into your mouth. Mm-hmm. And all you can do is just silently appreciate it. Yeah. When you were talking about mysticism, I'm thinking of Hildegard von Bingen. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 
And so many of the mystics who, uh, you know, you were saying so many things come into it, eroticism, Mm -hmm. um, discipline, all of that, would, um, I would argue in my very Mm -hmm. limited understanding of the mystics Mm -hmm. that perhaps mental illness is also (laughs) part of that. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Drawing actually, connections where maybe that, there aren't some. Um, that's actually what my, I'm on sabbatical right now, and that's what I'm working on. Yeah. Uh, mental illness, um, mysticism, mm-hmm. and, and uh, psychedelics. Like, oh. how do we distinguish between those three? Yeah. And is there a way that some of the modern technology of neuroimaging mm-hmm. can answer those questions? So that's, that's what I'm working on. That's what I'm working on a lot uh, right now. Um, and, and there is a sort of school of thought that says the distinction between mental illness and spiritual experience is a modern distinction that why couldn't the mental illness be generated by the divine? Maybe, you know, God gives us all different perspectives, different experiences. Mm -hmm. And sure, most of them fit within a fairly regulated container of normal and common. Uh, But we're all kind of in different edges of that container. Mm -hmm. Um, And so why wouldn't, God create certain humans who may be further on the edge, and that allows them to um, to see things that are different. I mean, in other areas of life, when you know there's someone um, uh, innovative in business or entrepreneurship, we we were like, you know, we don't we celebrate that, yeah. right? We're How like, great. oh my gosh, they're great. Mm-hmm. When someone's like a little quirky artistically. Mm-hmm. We go see their movies and read their books, right? Well, maybe that's what's happening spiritually. Yeah. Is that there's a few people who whether it's genetics or divine inspiration or experience or lead paint, I don't know. But they <laughs> something in their mind is working differently yeah. and it allows us to do it. Now, if it's destructive for them or for others, then I think we need to draw that distinction, mm-hmm. but it's not destructive if uh, then maybe maybe you know maybe that's just something uh it's part of the different you know weaves that make up the tapestry of life everybody's got something different and um and they can contribute that yes and mental illness uh is is like i said it's one way to describe it is drawing connections where they're not commonly seen. Yeah. So a great example of that would be, um, you know, somebody who is um, uh, has paranoia, mm-hmm. conspiracy theories, just crazy. You know, crazy is the wrong word here, but <laughs> but really elaborate yeah. um, imaginings that feel very real. I think that there are different shades on that spectrum where. Um, you know, as a musician, when I would write songs, often the kernel of a song would begin with a mistake from something else. Mm-hmm. And you hear it and it's like, oh, maybe that could be something yeah. of its very own. And so I drew a connection there that had not existed until that point, And I saw value in it and yeah. I capitalized on it. So, no, I'm completely with you. I... Yeah, I mean, mm. it's, it's interesting. So neurologically, I'm, I'm, I don't have a science background, which is both a great hindrance to my current research, but an advantage because I'm not 
coming at it with a whole bunch of like preconceived notions. Mm. And, um, and I've had just the most interesting time talking to neuroscientists and people who know this sort of thing. But one of the, one of the fascinating elements about what seems to be happening in the brain when you're having some of these profound spiritual experiences is, you know, our brain has this associative cortex, which is essentially taking both our sense data, which is not, you know, we think we just process sense data, but we also are making expectations mm -hmm. from, from, you know, previous experiences. And then we kind of run through this check and balance. And as we get older, we become more efficient in that associative cortex, which is literally how our minds become more closed, but more efficient. Because mm -hmm. it's the example that, that one neuroscientist used for me is bird watchers, you know, or bird, you know, um, callers or whatever they're, they're there. Where they hear the song where they, they where, where they can they can hear it. So yeah. what, what are they doing? They hear a little something and then they check it off. Is this a, you know, a, a blue jay? Is this a blue, you know, is this a cardinal? Is this a whatever? And they, they do it. And the more they do it, the more those routes get get um, like a deeper groove. get inscribed, mm -hmm. right? And they become more efficient in doing it and they're better at it. So this is a good process. Um, but one of the fascinating things, especially about psychedelic research is because it's very hard, we don't have people having mystical experiences and then being wheeled into neuroimagery machines. Right. So we don't have a control group in that, but with the psychedelics we do, is it basically, psychedelics blows up those those routes that mm. we that we inscribe so far, and this is one of the reasons why um, uh, psychedelics is being used a lot in PTSD yeah. stuff because it allows us to kind of rewire yes. our, our brains. So it allows us to make. So normally, you know, I'll hear a voice, and my brain will go through. Oh, that's a little bit like my second grade teacher. Is that relevant? No. So it's just going to move on, right? Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like a Disney movie I saw many years ago. Relevant? No, move on. Like it's making all these associations. Um, under psychedelics, your brain entertains those in such a way that we wouldn't under normal circumstances and allows you to make those sort of contacts. And, I, and the, one of the hypotheses in the spiritual experiences, you're just so open, open yeah. to associations. And that's why you suddenly see God in trees. Mm -hmm. This is why you feel the presence of divinity um, in the ocean, or you suddenly see every person as part of some universal soul yeah. um, because you're open to seeing in that sort of way. Um, and time and shifts, everything time, yeah. shifts, space, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and, it, and the, the question is, is, is um, that can be productive or it can be kind of destructive. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and I think that one of the distinctions with mental, mental illness or, um, or uh, you know, brain disease is when that becomes destructive. Yeah. Uh, and that, and, and that, that's when you know, intervention is, is important. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, I think, I think that's true. And, and it's you know, bringing this full circle to wine. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I find most interesting is encouraging people to make associations with the wine they're tasting that is not like on the taxonomy of yeah. the noble's aroma wheel, you yeah. know? You just say, just what is it to you? And that's the, some of the most fascinating things. Mm -hmm. I remember when my son was, uh, was at our eight or nine, he would love to like kind of sit on the edge of the room when all my friends and I would uh, taste wine. And he's a smart kid. 
And so he could mimic the language. And we were all in the WSEP mind frame, you know, mm-hmm. let's learn all the, okay, color, you know, tannin, whatever. And so he, he one time I, I go, Basil, taste, taste this, this, this really bright Pinot. What does it taste like? And he gave me some answer that sounded very much, you know, in line with what you would want on a WSET <laughs> test. And I go, Basil, it does not. He goes, what does it actually taste like? And he said, he goes, kind of tastes like the feeling you have when you have strawberry pop rocks after having orange juice. <laughs> and, and I tasted it, I'm like, that nails it, actually. Yeah, good you job. Know? Yeah, yeah. That is, that, that's actually tasting. And, you know, being open to it. And that's why one of the things we do, so my partner and I do these Spirit, Spirit of Wine workshops mm-hmm. where pre-COVID, it was great because we'd go to wineries and we'd do all this fun stuff. But one of the things, instead of saying, what does it taste like? We're like, you know, if this was a celebrity, who would it be? Mm-hmm. If, if this, I love that stuff. this was an author, who yeah. would it be? If this was a relative of yours, who would it be? Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, and and I think those sort of getting people out of the of the the boxes and the expectations mm-hmm. of wine allows them to make associations yeah. that can be super revealing and not just revealing of the experience and allow you to experience something in a new way. But one of the things we find so often is you know we do uh, uh, you know what uh, what town does this remind you of? Oh, love well, it. Well, you know, so oftentimes it'll be like, oh, is this little town outside of Ashland, North Carolina, or something like yeah. that. Someone else at the table goes, I didn't know you, you used to live in Ashland. Yeah. And then you watch and this group starts coming together mm-hmm. and wine was the impetus, but you can see it form. And, and that's when the beauty of churches happens, right? Mm-hmm. When all these connections end up getting made and, and wine was the stimulus for it. Mm-hmm. But then the connections become so much deeper because of that. In the same way that a really great spiritual community, God might be the thing that first brought them there. Yeah. But what keeps you in the church is usually the camaraderie, the people. closeness that you feel. And mm-hmm. so when you can encourage people to make the associations beyond um, what is sort of expected, mm-hmm. then, uh, then I, I think it opens yourself up, not just to, to frame your, your own personal experience in a way, but to make connections with others in a, in a creative way. Absolutely. Tell me about, uh, yourself in terms of, um, an experience that you've had mm-hmm. where, um, well, here, I'll, I'll lead, okay? okay? I want to talk about a religious experience that has nothing to do with religion. Okay. For me, I went to Vassar College. I, uh, I think it was my freshman or sophomore year. A friend of mine was visiting. Um, he went to NYU, and he came up on the train, and we were hanging out. I think he'd gone golfing or something. And um, there was a performance. We did a Lessons and Carols service. I was in the mm-hmm. choir, and we did a Lessons and Carols service in the big chapel there. And he picked me up, and I was all dressed for the concert, and he was going to be in the audience, and he dropped me off at this kind of funny place um, where I had to walk through a ton of snow. And it was fresh snow, and I had to walk from the road to the chapel through the snow. And I get overcome thinking about it. Time slowed way down. It was so silent. It was so beautiful the lights from the chapel on the snow and also the fact that I grew up here. It was so foreign to me. It felt like dead poet society or something, (laughs) but it was absolutely, I have no doubt in my mind at all. It was a religious experience and I was walking across Mm -hmm. a quad. So, and I didn't choose it. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't say I'm going to have a religious mm-hmm. experience. Do you have something like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot on the spiritual side, yeah. uh, unlike that. And I think um, you know the most meaningful ones are when you you can't force that that sort of experience. Yeah. It's unexpected. I mean, certainly, I can I can rec- I can share a, a wine experience like sure. that. We were um, when I first got to Cal Poly. Uh, there was a, a, a crew of us who had some interest in wine. None of us really knew wine that well at the time, looking back, although I think we probably thought we, we knew something. Anyhow, it was, um, it was, I think, in March, uh, and we went down to Santa Barbara to taste on the last day of the quarter, my second quarter at Cal Poly. And, um, and it was a Friday afternoon, and, you know, in California... You know, you just have these magical days. It was 72 degrees and perfectly clear. And we went to Beckman and we had a, we had the Syrah and we we're like, that's good. And then they, they opened like a, I think it was a block six Syrah. And we're like, that is really it's good. <laughs> and then they opened a 2005 Beckman clone one. And this group of, they're all in the philosophy department. And if you know philosophers, they love to talk, argue, this is their profession. Mm-hmm. Everybody tastes it, and there's this awkward silence. And everybody's like, wow, what is that? And so we, we, we bought a bottle and sat next to the little um, pond they have there, having some really crappy cheese. And we were just like, this is something that is so... D- I didn't know anything could taste mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, the bottle was like $50, which f- for us, none of us had bought a bottle over $20 in right. our lives. We all bought a bottle. Mm. And, and, um, and we all, you know, kind of at the time said, well, when I get tenure, I'm going to open this bottle. When I have my first child, I'm going to open this bottle. And, um, and uh, what's interesting is, uh, boy, five or six years later, a lot of those things had happened, but none of us had opened our bottle. Yeah. And, I, and looking back, I, I realized that we all knew we could never duplicate that. Yeah, right. Like it was going to be the same bottle, maybe even the same people. Mm-hmm. But there was something, because something magical about that moment, we were just cohering as friends yeah. and colleagues. We were just experiencing like great wine. Yeah. It was the end of the quarter. We had all worked really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and... It's 70 degrees in March and, you know, it, you're in a beautiful green place in mm-hmm. Santa, in Santa Inez. Um, and, and so, and so we can look back in some sense, that's a conversion experience, something mm-hmm. we'll never forget. Um, and, and, you know, and, and actually we just had a bottle of clone one from that year, uh, mm-hmm. this weekend, uh, cause we still occasionally bring them out now. But, uh, and they're still great. I mean, yeah. it's still just a great bottle of wine, yeah. particularly that year. But, um, but when you have those special experiences, you recognize when they're happening mm. and you don't want to let go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think part of their power is the realization that you can't hold on to them. Yeah. I remember when I, uh, when I first showed my youngest son, Snow, he, he took a big boat, he put it in a bag, he goes, I'm going to bring him back to my oh, friends in California. Precious. And I was just like, well, yeah. you can't. And I think in a way it's, it's like that. And it's almost like there's an old Buddhist tradition, you know, that says, you know, the harder you hold on to it, the more it slips through your fingers. 
And I think that is those experiences, whether it is that, you know, moment in the snow where there's some part of you that realizes this is something special happening and I'll never quite be in these circumstances again. Mm -hmm. I might have something parallel someday, but I'll never quite be in that experience again. Um, and, and those are, those are the, those are those markers in life that, that carry you forward and, uh, and make for, um, the places in your life story Mm -hmm. that help explain who you are. I think it's funny that you brought up snow (laughs) here, my random snow story. And yeah, well, um, there's so much we could talk about. I, I wish that we had more time to do that, but yeah. you are a winemaker. <laughs> you have a backyard vineyard. Um, how much do you make every year? Oh, uh, we make, I don't know, Six a bottles. barrel. <laughs> no, we make a barrel. So this year, actually, we're going to make uh, wine from just up the road. Uh, from ba- from, um, no, from um, Bishop's Peak. There's a little two-acre vineyard. Oh, get out of here. Just right over here is a retired... Uh, Cal Poly professor huh. planted it in eighty something, yeah. and they were looking for someone to make wine. So we're what is it? We're going, it's Pinot. Oh so, wow! Which uh, we are huge Pinot fans. Yep. So uh, it will actually be the first time we make uh, we've made Pinot. So uh, we'll see. Best but, of uh, luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we're building a house now with an underground wine making and storage thing. So. It will be an interesting, in- interesting process. How fun, though. How uh, fun to watch something grow like that. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting because um, sometimes when you're an academic and you look at things analytically, as one does when one has to write articles yep. and such, it can lose its mystery mm-hmm. because you spend your time teasing it apart. Um, but I have to say, for, for my partner and I, uh, there's something magical still about wine mm-hmm. uh, and making it and, and, and watching it. Um, you know, there's a, the, in, the, uh, in the place where I made wine in, in McLaren Vale, uh, it's called the birthing room because mm-hmm. something is being birthed there and you're not in complete control over it. Yeah. And, um, and this is one thing, um, you know, in, in, in making wine with the Noon family down in McLaren Vale, you know, one of the things I realize is that uh, in searching for a parallel, there's this Taoist concept of Wu Wei, which means active passivity, mm. <laughs> which is it's this, this idea that in Taoism, the world wants to move towards harmony, but our human actions get in the way. Mm-hmm. And so you need to actively get out of the way mm-hmm. to allow the harmony of the world to realize itself. And when trying to understand how Drew and, um, and Ray made wine, that's what they were doing. They were like, I want to get myself out of it mm-hmm. to allow these grapes to express us. Now, you're constantly working to get yourself out of it, yeah. you know, to, to not put your imprint on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but this sort of active passivity of saying, look, this fermentation's happening and I want to support nature in what it's doing and not try to force it into what I want it to be. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that in itself, and this is where the second book, The Spiritual Winemakers, mm-hmm. uh, really comes in, because that in itself has, has, has deep life lessons that, you know, you can kind of force other people to do something sometime. You can force nature into doing your will. Mm-hmm. But um, some of the best expressions are when you allow nature to reveal itself. Yeah. 
and you see yourself as the midwife uh, of that process. Um, and, uh, and, that's, and, and I can say that um, making wine for, for Amy and I is really a humbling experience. Yeah. And, uh, and making us realize that, man, there is, there's so much going on here. Yes, yes. I ask everybody on here, uh, if you were going to celebrate your last day of life, and you've loved your life, and you're proud of it, and you want to really enjoy yourself, um, what would you eat, what would you drink, and who would be there? Um, it's funny. We've had this conversation before. Um, well, I can tell you the food. Yeah. And that would be Brian Collins at Ember's oh. Noki. Oh, <laughs> that to, oh, what an to, honor! Yeah, that we, we've always uh, said it. We had a last like meal. Pillowy. That, oh gosh, yep. is, is Noki is the best. Um, <laughs> wine uh, for me would be an old Burgundy. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I I've tasted a few of them, and to me. There's something magical that happens, um, and uh, and and people. Uh, it would be you know my partner mm-hmm. Amy, and uh, my kids, and and you know the close people around us. I mean, um, I uh, I once interviewed. Uh, you you may have may know him, a Chiro up in North County, and yeah. he invented. Um, he invented a bread, uh, and he also panzarella crackers. He invented those. Really? Sold them years ago. He had uh, 80 acres up in North North County, and eventually he's moved to Washington, back to it. But he's 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 an Italian Italian American. Well, Italian Italian yeah. came to America. Fascinating guy. You can talk to him for ages. You'll only understand half the sentences that come out of his his mouth. Uh-huh. Of the half that you understand. Like what the words are, half are somewhat interesting, and of the half that of of the half, uh, every 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 hour he says something that just makes you pause. And I and I interviewed him for the class one time because he's just such a character. And uh, and I asked him, is it ever okay to drink alone? And he said, absolutely not. Never drink alone. You have to be able to talk about it. You need someone to communicate with. I mean, certainly not a colleague. You don't want a business, but because you need someone you talk to, like a dog. Or a plant, uh, and and I loved it because you know communication for an Italian is with everything, everything. around you, and I and I do think the most meaningful experiences are shared shared with others, and and creating that sort of community environment in which to share um, the experience of wine and experience of life is is the critical ingredient. And if you look now at our society. Uh, just the loneliness mm. and the separateness is is the you know the pandemic mm. behind not just this pandemic but modern society generally absolutely and and trying to create the those opportunities to gather again and be with people I think more than anything has been uh, Amy's and my mission in in all the stuff we do yep. This podcast was an effort to do that, um, and I love having people over, and I love making new friends, and I really appreciate your um, your scholarship in doing these books and just your, your pleasure in the subject. Yeah. I appreciate you coming. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to be a part of this lineage of the Consumed Podcast. <laughs> thank you. That wraps up another episode of Consumed. 
If you like what you heard and you think more people should hear it too, please review the podcast wherever you like to listen. Because remember that thing I said about being in the top 40 food and wine podcasts in the U.S.? Yeah, truly, thank you for listening. To learn more about Consumed, to see photos of my guests, and get links to their many projects and businesses, please visit letsgetconsumed.com. As always, special thanks to Chris Lambert, who edits this podcast, even though he's already outrageously busy with lots of other stuff. And thank you to everyone who lets me into their life for an hour each episode. Until next time, I'm Jamie Lewis.